Lesson 12 for June 13 to 19, Jesus in Jerusalem. Sabbath afternoon, June 13. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word this week, as we look more into the book of Luke, as we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem through the words that are written on the page, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. Help us to see not just the significance of this, but the grandeur, the this understatement that occurs. But above all, let us see the grace that flows through this story, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Let's read that again, Luke 19 verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. The last week of Jesus' earthly life unfolded in Jerusalem. What tumultuous events marked that week too? The triumphal entry, Jesus weeping over the indifferent city, the cleansing of the temple, the scheming and the plotting against him, the pathos of the Last Supper and the agony of Gethsemane, the mockery of a trial, the crucifixion, and finally, the resurrection. Never before, and never since, has any city witnessed so critical a progression of history, one that brought the cosmic conflict between good and evil to its climax, even though no one but Jesus understood the significance of what was unfolding. Jesus had passed through Jerusalem several times in his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all record Jesus as an adult visiting Jerusalem, though mostly during the Passion Week. Although other appearances of Jesus in Jerusalem are well known, the infant Jesus being brought to the temple in Luke 2, the debate of the twelve-year-old in the temple in the same chapter, the tempter taking Jesus to the highest point of the temple once again in Luke chapter 4, it is the closing week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem that occupies the special attention of the Gospel writers. Sunday, June 14, The Triumphal Entry He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He taught, preached and healed throughout Galilee, Samaria, Judea and Perea. But one city held his constant focus, Jerusalem. Jesus steadfastly set his face to go, it says in Luke 9.51, to the city. His entry into the city marked the most dramatic and crucial week in world history. The week began with Christ's kingly march into the city and saw his death on the cross, by which we who were enemies, as it says in Romans 5.10, were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Question. Read Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. Imagine the excitement of the disciples— they must surely have thought that at this time King Jesus would ascend to an earthly throne at Jerusalem, the throne of King David. What important lesson about false expectations can we take from this account? 
Well, let's begin at Luke chapter 19 and verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it, and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. When Jesus was born, wise men from the east came knocking at the doors of Jerusalem, asking that poignant question, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Matthew 2.2 2. And now, a few days before the cross, as his disciples and the multitudes thronged the city, an acclaim burst across Jerusalem's sky. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This amazing scene fulfilled prophecy. From Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yet Jesus knew that this march of history, which began with the shouts of Hosanna, would soon wind up on Golgotha, where he would utter those triumphant words, It is finished. Though it was all according to God's eternal plan, his disciples were so caught up in the traditions and teachings and expectations of their own time and culture that they completely missed his earlier warnings about what would take place and what it all meant. So to finish today, Christ spoke to them, but they didn't listen. Or maybe they listened, but what he said went so much against what they expected that they blocked it out. How can we make sure we aren't doing the same thing when it comes to biblical truth? Monday, June 15. Jerusalem, cleansing the temple. It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. 
Luke 19, verse 46. After the triumphal entry, during which Jesus wept over Jerusalem, the first thing he did was to go to the temple. Question. Read Luke 19, verses 45 to 48, Matthew 21, 12 to 17, and Mark 11, 15 to 19. What important lessons can we take away from what Jesus had done? What should these accounts say to us as individuals and as members of a community that, in a way, functions like the temple, as in Ephesians 2.21? Well, first of all, Luke 19, beginning at verse 45, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him, and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And then Matthew 21, beginning at verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. And Mark, chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. And Ephesians 2.21 In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. All four Gospels mention the cleansing of the temple. While John speaks of the first cleansing in John 2, taking place during Jesus' visit to the temple at the Passover in AD 28, others narrated the second cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry, this time at the Passover of AD 31. Thus the two cleansings of the temple provided a parenthesis to the ministry of Jesus, showing how much he cared for the sanctity of the temple and its services, and how strategically he asserted his messianic mission and authority. His actions in the temple, especially the second time, which came just before his death, present an interesting question. Knowing that he was soon to die knowing that the temple and its services would soon become null and void, Jesus nevertheless drove out those who were profaning it with their wares. 
Why did he not simply leave it alone in its own corruption, especially since it would not only become unnecessary, but within a generation would be destroyed? Though we are not given an answer, it's most likely because it was still God's house, and it was still the place where the plan of salvation was revealed. In a sense, one could argue that, with his upcoming death, the temple and its services served an important function in that they were the place to help faithful Jews come to understand just who Jesus was and what his death on the cross really meant. That is, the temple, which depicted the entire plan of salvation, could help many come to see in Jesus, as it says in Revelation 13.8, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Tuesday, June 16, The Unfaithful The parable of the wicked vine dressers in Luke chapter 20 verses 9 to 19 gives us a lesson in redemptive history. The centre of that history is God and his continual love for erring sinners. Although the parable was specifically addressed to the Jewish leaders of his time, they knew that he had spoken this parable against them in verse 19, it is timeless in its reach. It applies to every generation, every congregation, and every person on whom God's love and trust have been poured out, and from whom God expects a faithful return. We are today's tenants, and we can draw from this parable some lessons on history as God views it. Question. Read Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. How does the principle taught here apply to us if we make the same mistakes as those in the parable? Well, let's begin Luke 20 and at verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and he went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treating him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they'll respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected? has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. 
Instead of giving to God the fruits of love and fidelity, the tenants of God's vineyard forsook and failed God. But God, as the owner of the vineyard, sent servant after servant, as we read in verses 10 to 12, prophet after prophet, in persistent love to woo and win his people to their responsibility of stewardship. Each prophet, though, became a victim of rejection. And as it says in Acts 7.52, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Divine history is a long love story. Tragedy will raise its head again and again, but glory will eventually triumph. Resurrection must follow the cross. The stone that was rejected is now the cornerstone of a great temple that will house the commonwealth of God, where all the redeemed, the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, the male and the female, will live as one people. They shall walk in the eschatological vineyard and enjoy its fruit forever. And so to finish today, we might not have living prophets today to persecute, but we are just as capable of rejecting God's messengers as were people of old. How can we make sure that we, who have been called to give the Lord the fruit of the vineyard, do not reject these messengers and their messages? Wednesday, June 17, God versus Caesar. Question. Read Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 26. How do we take what Jesus taught here and apply it to our own situation in whatever country we live? Let's begin Luke 20, verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer, and kept silent. During the time of Jesus, taxation by Rome was a volatile issue. Around A.D. 6, according to Josephus, Judas the Galilean, a revolutionary leader, declared that paying taxes to Caesar was treason against God. The issue among the several messianic claims and aspirants set off periodic anti-Roman revolts. Against such a sensitive background, the question put before Jesus about whether it was lawful to pay taxes revealed the ulterior motive of the interrogators – to answer that it was lawful would have placed Jesus on the side of Rome, showing that he could not be the king of the Jews, as declared by the crowds at his entry into Jerusalem. 
To say no would have meant that Jesus was following the Galilean mood and declaring the Roman rule unlawful, opening himself to the charge of treason. They had hoped to put Jesus in a bind from which he couldn't escape. Jesus, though, sought right through them. He pointed to the image on Caesar on a coin and pronounced his verdict. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Living under Caesar, whose currency is used for day-to-day necessity, has its obligation to Caesar. But then there is another obligation, a greater one, which rises from the fact that we are made in the image of God, and that to him we owe our ultimate allegiance. As it says in Desire of Ages, page 602, Christ's reply was no evasion but a candid answer to the question. He declared that since they were living under the protection of the Roman power, they should render to that power the support it claimed, so long as this did not conflict with the higher duty. But, while peaceably subject to the laws of the land, they should at all times give their first allegiance to God. End of quote. And so to finish today. What are ways we can continue to be good citizens in whatever country we live, while at the same time knowing that our true citizenship exists in a city, as it says in Hebrews 11.10, whose builder and maker is God? Thursday, June 18, The Lord's Supper. Question. Read Luke chapter 22, verses 13 to 20. What is the significance of the Lord's Supper taking place at the Passover? Well, let's read Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 13. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus founded the Lord's Supper against the historic context of the Passover feast. The Passover setting underscores human impotence in contrast to God's great power. It was as impossible for Israel to free itself from Egyptian bondage as it is for us to free ourselves from the consequences of sin. Liberation came from God as a gift of his love and grace, and this is the lesson Israel was to teach its children from generation to generation, as we read in Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27. 
And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when we struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Just as the liberation of Israel was so rooted in history by the redeeming act of God, so the liberation of humanity from sin is grounded in the historic event of the cross. Indeed, Jesus is our Paschal Lamb, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And his Last Supper is a proclaiming act where the community in faith gives expression to the glorious and decisive significance of the death of Christ, writes G. C. Bakawa in the Sacraments, page 193. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that on the same night in which he was betrayed, on the same night before he was crucified, Jesus gave a solemn message to his disciples that they needed to remember. The bread and the wine are symbols of his body, which was about to be broken, and of his blood, which was about to be shed for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, verse 28, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The death of Jesus was God's sole means for our redemption from sin. Lest we forget that the death of Jesus is heaven's provision for our salvation, Jesus ordained the Lord's Supper and commanded that it be kept until he returns. We read that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 26. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Jesus' assertion that his blood was to be shed for many for the remission of sins in Matthew 26, is to be remembered even to the end of history. To ignore this assertion and choose any other means of salvation is to deny God and his chosen method of salvation. Two crucial lessons of many stand out. Christ died for us is the first lesson to be remembered at the table of the Lord. The second lesson is that we sit as one body because of that death, which has brought us all into one fellowship. Even as we sit at the table, we sit as Christ's redeemed community of the end time, awaiting the Lord's return. Until then, the table of the Lord is a reminder that history has meaning and life has hope. And so to finish today, Christ gave his body and blood in order to give you the promise of eternal life. How can you personalize this amazing truth in a way that will constantly give you hope and assurance? 
Friday, June 19. Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 389, To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ is to receive him as a personal saviour, believing that he forgives our sins and that we are complete in him. It is by beholding his love, by dwelling upon it, by drinking it in, that we are to become partakers of his nature. What food is to the body, Christ must be to the soul. Food cannot benefit us unless we eat it, unless it becomes a part of our being. So Christ is of no value to us if we do not know him as a personal saviour. A theoretical knowledge will do us no good. We must feed upon him, receive him into the heart, so that his life becomes our life. His love, his grace, must be assimilated. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, consider the scenes in which Jesus cleansed the temple. In what ways can we put our faith and fidelity on sale? How can religion be used for profit, prestige and position? More important, how can we as a church make sure we don't fall into the same deception? And question two. Atheist writer Alex Rosenberg believes that all reality, all existence, is purely materialistic. That is... Everything can and must be explained through physical processes, and only physical processes. These processes are, of course, without design, goals, purposes, or God. What is the purpose of the universe, he asks? There is none. What purposes are at work in the universe? Same answer, none. If, though, the meaninglessness and purposelessness of the universe makes you depressed, Rosenberg warns against taking your depression seriously. Why? Because our emotions, including depression, are nothing but specific arrangements of neurons and chemicals, and what's so serious about that? Rosenberg, however, does have an answer for those discouraged by the meaninglessness of their lives. He continues, Because depression is merely a particular configuration of neurons, simply rearrange the neurons, and you can do this with pharmaceuticals. He says, if you don't feel better in the morning, or three weeks from now, switch to another one. Three weeks is often how long it takes serotonin reuptake suppression drugs like Prozac, Welbutrin, Paxil, Zoloft, Celexa, or Luvox to kick in. And if one doesn't work, another one probably will he says. The amazing thing about his answer is that he is serious. If depressed, take drugs. Contrast this view of life with what we believe regarding Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Why, in a very real sense, is our participation in the Lord's Supper an open and defiant refutation of the nihilism and meaninglessness presented by Rosenberg and his atheism. And just a little comment here, as a physician myself, I realise that this last passage can be read the wrong way. It was talking about using antidepressants to treat the hopelessness that comes from thinking that the world and universe have no meaning. But they are life-saving if people have depression. So if you are on those medication, do not stop taking them on the basis of this particular paragraph that I've just read. If you have concerns, talk to your physician.
Don't make any changes. And God bless you this Sabbath. Inside Story Our mission story this week returns from Mongolia. It's part two of Fighting with the Shadows. My friend Dabba had gone to Ulaanbaatar to work, and there he became a Christian. When he returned home, he tried talking with me. Because we were friends, I listened to his advice and nodded my head. But in my heart, I was making fun of what he was saying. I thought his belief in God was foolish. Dabba learned that some Christians were meeting nearby, and he invited me to go with him to the meeting. I went out of respect for Dabba, but I was embarrassed to go to a Christian meeting. They talked about God, and I remembered that I had a New Testament at home. Afterward, I found it and began reading, but it didn't make sense to me. Byra, the leader of the Christian group, offered to explain the Bible passages to me. A few weeks later, Dabber invited me to a Bible study group on Saturday. I decided to grow. Dabber wasn't an Adventist, but the home Bible study group was the only Christian meeting in the village, and he was eager for Christian fellowship. The morning I attended, the speaker talked about God's love, and somehow the message got through to me. I saw in my mother's love for me a reflection of God's love. Even when I came home drunk and she scolded me, she was still there to encourage and help me. I continued attending the Bible study group. As Byer explained different Bible passages, the Bible began to make sense to me. I began reading the Bible because I wanted to, not because I felt I should. Soon I could not stop reading it, and I gave my heart to God. Over the years I had promised myself many times that I would stop drinking— but I was never able to stop. Dabba told me to pray and ask God for the strength. When I started praying, all my old drinking friends left town. God took them away so they wouldn't influence me. Then he took away the desire to drink and delivered me from the chains of alcohol. My mother and sisters are amazed. They see how God is changing my life and they ask many questions about my faith in God. Before I met Christ, fighting, drinking and stealing were my life. But when I met Jesus, I realized that nothing in my heart was good. I asked God to give me a clean heart, a clean life. And now I long to spend time with him. I confess, truly confess, that those times I hurt others by my words or my actions were wrong and bad. I don't ever want to do those things again. By God's grace, I am a changed man. The Seventh-day Adventist Church continues to grow in Mongolia as more people come to learn about God through the witness of those who have given their lives to Him. Thank you for supporting Mission. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.